0: Hello, and welcome to the Exploring Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Nicholas Krim. on this show, we sit down with leaders in healthcare and really explore the ideas, strategies, and the companies that are shaping the future of healthcare so that we can be aware of these things so that we can implement these strategies in our own life, in our companies, and really drive real change within the industry. And on this episode, I sat down with Andy Schoonover, who is the CEO of CrowdHealth, where they are providing an alternative model outside of traditional health insurance for you to shop and pay for your family's health care needs. And so we talk a lot about the mission of the company. We talk about some of the logistics and the, and the nuts and bolts of how that works. And a lot about Andy's background as well, his time at business school, and really his path into entrepreneurship. So it was a wide-reaching conversation that was really enjoyable, and I hope that you'll enjoy it as well. We'll go ahead and get started. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Well, I wanted to start here with, with a little bit about your background. And then um, also in my prep, I read that after Stanford Business School, you started a search investment fund to acquire a small business, which I thought was a, an interesting concept. And um, in addition to your background, I wanted to get some more information about what you learned from that experience and and what was the result of that.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's actually a pretty funny story. I was I was at Stanford um, between our first year and and second year of of, of B school, and um, we all went to different parts of the country for our internships. So we were we were renting out our our place there in Silicon Valley that five of us were staying in while we were going to B school, and we rented it out to these guys from Boston who are looking to move to to Silicon Valley. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, The Social Network, um, but there is a, a subplot in that movie about Eduardo getting $18,000. I think it was $18,000 um, from his dad to pay for this house in Silicon Valley. Well, that house was our house. Oh, so wow. Mark Zuckerberg stayed in in our house. And the only reason I, I bring that story up because I graduated in 2006, which you know was just a crazy time in Silicon Valley. Um, Facebook was starting up, you know, Google was was kind of well on its way and so all my, my, uh, my B-School classmates at Stanford went and did those high tech or a lot of them did the high tech flying, um, you know, companies and, and my, my roommate and I were like, you know, we want to do something a little bit different. So we raised a, a search fund, which is basically a, a, a private SPAC, um, there was no SPACs back in 2006, but it's, you know, we raised a little bit of money to go and find a company to buy. Um, and then once we found that company, we'd go back to the investors and say, okay, now we need the the, the equity to buy it. Um, and then we would take over the leadership of that company. And so we bought a company in, of all places, Dayton, Ohio. Um, so as you can imagine, my our Silicon Valley friends were like, you're going to go from silicon valley to dayton ohio uh you know questionable judgment but we bought a a little company that was a a medical alert company so i'm sure you've seen the the commercials i've fallen and i can't get up we were a a competitor to theirs so it's a button they have around their neck and they when somebody for for elderly primarily they fall they press the button and uh and and you know we will we get them help well we we took that company realized that our our average customer was 84 they had two and a half healthcare conditions on average, and we were being very reactive. And so, um, you know, we, we, we actually put a Bluetooth module in that pendant that they wear it around their neck so we could start monitoring blood pressure and blood sugars and weight and things like that. So it could be more proactive. Um, and that went just really, really well. And so we sold that company in 2014. So um, long-winded way of saying, you know, what what do we learn from that? Um you know, I, I think that we have some challenges um, in, in society that if we if we look at things a little bit differently, right? If we're willing to kind of s- step outside of the of the box, I think there's really you know huge opportunities to to disrupt the way that we currently are are doing things. Um, you know, putting a little Bluetooth module and you know a pendant that people wear around their neck that they've been doing that for thirty or forty years, right? um was fairly disruptive to the medical alert space, right? And that's a very small example. But, you know, are there are there things out there um that we can make, you know, minor, minor tweaks to that could really change the way that we as as society operate. Um and so, you know, I've been looking for those things ever, ever since. And, you know, I think that'll be, you know, kind of foundational to our conversation today is 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 what we're doing at Crowd Health. But um that was one of the big learnings that that I had. Um, so in my my first endeavor, um, that company was called called VRI, um, which got sold again
0: um, a couple of weeks ago. So it's been okay. a fun run with that. Where did that desire? Where has that desire come from to think about problems differently? To try to think outside the box, even maybe think uh, I don't know if contrarian is kind of the right word, but uh, where does that come from for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great question, and I think it's you know we've had. All kinds of scientific studies around, you know, where, why are our personalities the way that they are? You know, is it nature versus nurture? Right? Is there never any questions. Then is it nature or is it is it is it nurture? Um, you know, and I, and I think interestingly, you know, I grew up in St. Louis. Um, I, I I spent my teenage years and and college years in the Washington D.C. area. I moved out to Silicon Valley for business school. Went back to the Midwest. Now I live in Austin, Texas um and so i th- i think it's you know a little bit of just meeting lots of different people with lots of different backgrounds um that you, you kind of get this you, you kind of get this sense of like you know all these all these people are 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 generally similar like you know th- that we may have different perspectives on politics or things like that but i mean we're 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 all created the same way <laughs> um mm-hmm. and, and and so you know I, what i feel like though is is what i've seen in some parts of the country is people just think that they can't do it right um and i think that being on the east coast and then going out to silicon valley which is where it really changed for me is like no no, no there's a lot of average horsepower folks like you may not not have given the been given the god-given you know horsepower of intelligence you know just super super intelligence but you know what i found is most of the really really successful entrepreneurs that i meet aren't like massively wicked smart right they're like they are average folks who are just willing to work their tail off and do something a little bit different you know i want to Stanford, but I was thinking I was like the bottom 10% of my class. Like I'm a pretty average, um, you know, intelligence kind of guy, but I, I'm willing to kind of look at the problems differently and say, you know, how can we, how can we solve this? Our, I think problem solving is way more, you know, valuable than, than just raw intelligence. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question, but it, it is, it is one of those interesting things when you really start talking to lots of entrepreneurs is they're just average folks you know, and an average person out
0: there can go and build something really, really special. Yeah. So what would you say are the, um, you know, if I hear what you're saying, just wicked intelligence, I think is the term you used is not necessarily a, a, a fundamental skill that you need to have or requirement to be a successful entrepreneur. What are some of those fundamental skills that you you've seen say that, uh, that make a successful entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. So, and, you know, let me, let me talk about that wicked intelligence. I, you know, I had, I've met a lot of really smart people. I went to undergrad in Virginia. I went to grad school at Stanford, some super smart people. Um, you know, and a lot of those people get get A's on everything that they do, right? And if they can't get an A, they're not interested in it. Right, and so one of the fundamental things that you have to get comfortable with with an being an entrepreneur and being a startup is you're going to fail. Like it's not an if, it's a when. <laughs> You know, even if your company ultimately ends up being successful, you are going to fail along the way and you have to be comfortable with that, right? And so I would way more prefer people, you know, internally that I hire being B students um, than A students, you know, it's because B students know that what it's like to get a B sometimes and being okay with that and being like, okay, how do I do better the next time? Right? So there's a willingness to fail that I think is just imperative in, in being a successful, you know, entrepreneur. Um, you know, also, one of the things I should mention this back with with VRI is, um, you know, there's, there's a humility, too, that I think is really, really important. Um, you know, we, we came into the, to VRI, we were 28 at the time. Um, we were asking, you know, two or three dozen people to follow us, and they're looking at us and saying, wait a second, you're a 28-year-old. Like, what the hell do you know, <laughs> right? And in reality, not a lot. Right. So we, we went in there and we were like, Hey, we're going to do nothing for 90 days. We're just going to sit and learn from you all. Hmm. Right. And I think that really connected with people at that company, right. There's a humility. That's like, you know, a lot more than I do at what you do. So let me sit and learn, you know, my, my grandpa always used, used to tell me, he's like, always be willing to learn from those willing to teach and teach those willing to learn. Right. And you have to put yourself as a, a leader of a company. I think my personal pr- opinion is being in the place of teaching sometimes, but learning a lot too. Right? If you're always teaching and never learning, that's a tr- that's problems. You know, that's a red flag for me as as an entrepreneur um, because that means you either are the best person in the room for every function, or you think you're the best person in the room for every function. It's probably the latter, right? Um, and that's 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 a challenge with people trying to to grow and scale a company. Um, So I think the willingness to fail um, and humility are are the two that I would say, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd back those people every
0: day. I was listening to a podcast the other day with a pretty successful investor. And it was interesting. He said something very similar along the lines of um, some folks just on the trajectory of their education and their career, they, they kind of get in the habit of collecting gold stars. And so to put themselves in a position where they may fail, um, you know, they look at it as like, I may lose my place in society or this track that I'm on. And mm. he alluded a lot of their success to having not gone that route, just a different route and being a little bit more willing to paint outside the lines. I think it's how we put it. Um, just being able to do things maybe a little bit more unconventionally and take some more risks um, just because, again, because of the path that they took. So, yeah, no, um, I think it's great. I wanted to ask too, you, you mentioned the learning and the humility at VRI, what did that process look like? Was that sitting across people, at, you know, in the office? Was it getting people outside of the office? Like, what was that process of learning from the employees? What did that look like? Yeah, and
1: so you know, one of the things I did is one of the uh, kind of one of the functions internally was a big call center, right? So if you press the button, you needed help. There's a call center that would, you know, get on the line, would say, "Hey, how are you doing?" and then get a a nine one one paramedics, whatever it ends up being, to your house depending upon the need. You know, and that was a, um, I think it was like a three or four week training period. Um, and so I went through it. You know, I sat there with the new people, like going through it. Um, and they thought it was hilarious, right? They thought it was hilarious that the CEO would be sitting there with them, right? They're making 12 bucks an hour or something, 14 bucks an hour. Um, they, they thought that was great, right? And I got to sat, sit there every single day with these people and go through their job. I was like, if, if I'm really gonna understand how this company works, I need to know how this core component works, right? Um, and I just sat there with them. It was like, you, you show me how to do this. Then I got out on the floor and I was like, I told her, I was like, I'm nervous as anything getting out on this floor and like actually taking real phone calls because you have people on the other side of the line. It was like, it's life and death situation, right? Mm-hmm. But I learned it, I'm going through it. I'm gonna train with you. And they just thought it was cool like that I was sitting out there with them trying to learn what they... They, what they do, um, you know, a lot of times we'd actually have to go into the homes of these folks to install this equipment. I was out there with them, you know, I went out and installed equipment in the in the homes of these people, um, and I think they respected me for it. I respected them because I knew how hard their jobs were, um, and if you just have that mutual respect between you know leadership um, folks and and the folks who are actually like executing on day to day, that makes for a really great culture. Um, so we. Chris Hendrickson, who's my business partner, and I were were very intentional about lowering ourselves to be learners for that first ninety days, um, and whether that was going through the training program or installing units or taking customer service phone calls or whatever, that's what
0: we were going to do. So um, I think that went a long way. Tell me about your business partner, Chris. How did you guys get connected, and what was it um, that's made that a good partnership?
1: Yeah, no, it's it's that's a good great question. I I um so i I met Chris, he was, he was my roommate. So it's totally, you know, random. I, I think it's divine intervention, um, that we got, <laughs> we got, you know, quote unquote, stuck together as, as roommates. Um, he, and, he and I, um, so we, we've known each other, you know, since 2004. So for a long, long time. So I knew the partner I was going to, you know, getting into business with which I think is really, really important and there was a mutual respect there but, and that was kind of the the foundations of which but of which made our our partnership successful. However, I I do think and here's another another learning is, you know, there are, we're clearly wired all differently. chris is is wired to be more of of an integrator you know he is into the details he, he loves kind of the operational details of how uh, an organization works right um so chris took over all the finance all the operations um those types of of core kind of competencies within the within the organization i took all of the sales and the business development because i I I like spreading the vision. I like getting excited. I like getting other people excited, and that's just not his personality. And so, you know, they, there is a a book um, called Rocket Fuel, um, which I would go and recommend to folks who are, who are in small companies. And basically what the author was, was saying is, is that for every great company, you need an integrator or also AKA operator and a visionary or aka sales biz dev, you know, type of person. If you can go to get those two people together um, in an organization, it will create rocket fuel. That's when the rocket will take off. Um, and so I think what, you know, Chris and I just, we, we generally loved each other um, just as, as human beings. Um, and that helped us keeping, keeping us from killing each other because, you know, anybody who <laughs> who's been in a small company knows that when you get the sales people and the operations people in the room, they oftentimes want to kill each other. Um, and so we had just a respect and a love for each other. It was Like, look, I'm going to be, you know, really direct and straightforward with you right now. Um, but let's go ahead ha- have a beer afterwards. Um, and if you have those relationships with that kind of, um, that, that other person in the company,
0: um, I think that that goes a long, long way. I could probably put together a long list of examples of successful companies that have had. You know kind of two founders with different skill sets that have really complemented one another so well i mean the most the most obvious
1: one that comes to my mind right is is steve jobs and tim cook right like those two guys you know steve was the visionary and and tim was the-, the the execution guy behind and so now we've seen tim kind of you know still an execution guy take over as the ceo but i you know i i assume there's other visionaries and and folks within that company that or continue to help it to innovate. Some people said they've slowed down their innovation since Steve left, um, but you know, that's that's the debate, but I think you're right. You can go over and over and over again on who is that person. Um, you usually think of the Elon Musk's or the Jeff Bezos or the, you know, those types of people, but there's usually a, an integrator on the backend that was like, all that vision is good, but we actually now have to execute upon
0: it, right? right. Um, so I, I think you're right. There's yeah. dozens of examples. Yeah, and the Apple ones really uh, interesting too. I've been reading through Steve Jobs' biography, and and even in the early days with Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, you know, yeah. If it weren't for Steve Jobs, I mean, Steve Wozniak was pretty content just to be a you know an, an engineer at, at HP and kind of keep this as a side gig and sell it to their computer club and that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. and uh, but it needed that vision and long term strategy to really to really grow it. Um, and Steve
1: couldn't Steve Jobs couldn't do what Wozniak was doing. Without right. Wozniak, Apple wouldn't be here. Right. right. Um, so, so I, I think it's a perfect example.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's talk about crowd health. Um, yeah, but I appreciate you spending so much time on, on your background cause I think it's really interesting and, and, um, it's good to have that background in that context, but yeah. So what about crowd health? What was the motivation to start the company? And, uh, if you can explain a little about what you guys are building. Sure. Yeah. So, um, I ran VRI
1: through 2014, um stuck around and we sold it to a private equity group stuck around for two more years to help that with that transition and uh rolled off of that and as you know many folks who kind of roll off their corporate job um realizes that also means you roll off your insurance plan um and so i i i didn't have health insurance um and so i went to healthcare.gov which you know a lot of us do um got a plan it was 1200 bucks a month $8,000 Eight thousand dollar deductible, and I just that was a, for a, a middle of the road type of, of plan uh, back back then. I think they're even more expensive today. But um, and and so that worked until I actually had to use it. Um, my my da- my little one who was one at the time was having recurring ear infections, mm-hmm. and so we went to the to the ear, nose, and throat doctor, and he said, "Yeah, she's got a perforated eardrum. You know, she needs to get tubes in her ears." um so if you know there are parents out there listening to this i'm sure they've gone through you know similar things right and, um, so we're like okay let's go get tubes in our ears and so went to the local hospital it was a 15 minute procedure super easy and um kind of get to the end of that get the bill and it was eight thousand dollars and oh, i'm like wow. wow like 15 minutes we were literally in the hospital for like 40 minutes and that included like 15 minute of pre-op 15 minute post-op and 15 minute op so it was 45 minutes it was like we were in and out like the fastest hospital visit ever right it was $8,000 and I'm, I'm like wow like this is my first kind of interaction with the healthcare system where I was like this is this is stupid I mean this is silly um but I was like I I guess this is what my health insurance is for right i was i had made it through a a big chunk of my deductible so i was assuming my health insurance plan was going to pick it up i get a note 30 days later from my health insurance plan it says it was medically unnecessary and i'm like Hmm. wait a second right like an ear nose and throat doctor looked in her ears saw a perforated eardrum which basically means she had a hole in her eardrum um he he delayed his vacation by a day because he was so concerned with her long-term potential long-term hearing loss um that, you know, and and some person in New York somewhere said that this was medically unnecessary. I went through two rounds of, of uh conflict, you know, resolution or whatever it is, resolution on that. Uh still re- declined it. So I had to stroke an eight thousand dollar check to the local hospital. And as you can probably imagine, you know, especially if it's my, my kid, right? It's like, don't mess with my kid, right? I was I was pretty pissed. Um and so I called the health plan and then I said I quit. You know, if 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 I'm not going to pay $1,200 a month, if you guys aren't going to pay when I really need you, um, and you know, since then I've I've started building some tools um, that allow people to operate outside of of the existing the existing healthcare system, um, and and that cul- that's culminated in Crowd Health. Um, we raised six million bucks of venture capital, um, some family and friends money. Um, to basically create an alternative to, to health insurance. You know, it's not a health plan. It's, it's really just creating some tools to allow you and your family to operate outside of the existing health insurance market. So that's what we've, what we've built.
0: Well, I'm sorry you had to go through that experience with your daughter. Uh, Although it sounds like it was a very powerful motivator and really kind of opened your eyes to the way that the healthcare system can operate and some of these large bills that people can get saddled with. Um, I mean, so you had that experience. What was that process like of coming up with the idea? I mean, um, walk me through that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these, you know, entrepreneurial ideas just are come, come from these bad situations, right? So, you know, all, all, all things ultimately are worked for good. And so um, I, I think that my bad situation, the pain, right, the, of, of what I had to go through actually is going to result in something that, um, I think is going to help a, a, a lot of people um, and I, you know, I was, I was in a a, a place in life where VRI was super successful um, financially could, could do something that if, if it didn't work out, it was okay. My, me and my family were going to be all right. Um, I didn't really feel like I needed a bunch of gold stars. So if I were going to fail, you know, it was okay to fail. Um, I kind of sh- sh- shown that I can do it right. I can, I can run a company and make it successful. I don't really need that, to, you know, to prove anymore, I think, you know not to get off topic here a little bit but like a lot of males in their 40s you know i'm in my 40s get to this point right where they feel like they have to accomplish something and they have to show the world um that they accomplished something Mm -hmm. um you know maybe that's midlife crisis or whatever it is right i you know with vri um we 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 Started with a couple dozen employees, and we ended with several hundred employees. Right, so it wasn't where I needed to feel like I needed to prove anything anymore. Right, so mm-hmm. this was one where I I could do something that was missional, um, and for me, that's really what this is is a, a missional thing where I'm really pissed that I had to pay eight thousand dollars, but I'm more pissed that there are hundreds of thousands of families that have to pay that eight thousand dollars that can't pay for it. Right, my thing here's, you don't have if you have a health event that puts you into financial distress, you don't actually have health insurance, right? You're paying for it, but you don't actually have it. The whole point of insurance is so that you don't go into financial distress if you have a big event occur. And most of these high deductible health plans um, are are set up, right? So that you're six or eight or 10, or maybe even more than that, $1,000 in the hole. And like I said, 95 plus percent of Americans just don't have that, those dollars, and you know, I saw yeah. something the other day, 60% of people don't have enough money for a thousand dollar deductible. 60% can't pay a thousand bucks, right? Um, we had 250,000 people last year go bankrupt because of, of health insurance. And so I, I'm looking at this and for me, it's missional. It's like, what can we do to really change this system so that people stop getting screwed? Um, and that's that's what we built. Um, and, and that was kind of the the the, the passion that I have for, for building something that really can, can change the way the system is operating.
0: Yeah. It's pretty eye opening and, and shocking when you just sit there and think about the fact that a lot of people's deductible, uh, and you may have, you may have shared this on LinkedIn, but a lot of people's deductible on their health plan is higher than their, you know, liquid net worth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exa-
1: exactly. So, you know, if you just think about, I mean, anybody listening to this, right. Look at your deductible, what is it? First off, people don't know what their deductible is generally, right? All the people that I've talked to, it's probably been a hundred, you know, since I've founded Crowd Health, you know, and just friends and family and talking to about this. I've asked, what is your deductible? And I've had like three know what their deductible was hmm. with certainty. Some people are like, I don't know, maybe it's 2000, it's 4000. Is that per person or for your family? I don't really know. I'm like, dudes like you've got to know what your deductible is because the deductible is how much money is coming out of your account if you have a big health event right right? um so we need to educate folks on understanding it's not just what you pay monthly it it is it is what you have to pay if there's a big health event which is ultimately what's important
0: yeah what i love about your guys' solution is you know when i in an industry where we're so used to things being complex and complicated when i go to the crowd health site and i start reading about the solution that you guys are offering is it's it's very simple to understand it's very self-explanatory it's easy to follow um so can you walk us through a, a mm-hmm. script subscription model um it's a community of people coming together to share the risk of these big health events um and so can you walk us through some of the tools that you mentioned that you guys are that you're giving families and giving in, individuals and patients to help navigate the sure. system sure
1: yeah so um, we, we ask, so if you're, if you're between the ages of six and, and 54, we ask that you contribute 150 bucks a month into the, the community, right? For, to, to the needs of, of the community. Uh, um, and then we have another $25, which goes to crowd health. And that's the way that we make our money. It's a subscription fee. Um, you know, health plans usually make their money as like, taking premiums minus claims. The, 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 the delta there is how much profit you make, um, and we can talk about that more how there are some seriously perverse incentives, but um, we are just taking a $25 fee to be a part of the, the, the service so um, so when you have a medical need. Um, there are kind of three different different um, scenarios here, one is you just have a primary care physician visit or an obgyn or a pediatrician, just your normal run-of-the-mill things, you'll go in and you'll say, Hey, can I have a cash pay rate? Um and usually that cash pay rate will be 20 or 30% um, lower than what the health plan will pay. Mm-hmm. So um my my daughter, I literally just saw the bill today. My daughter went to the pediatrician yesterday um to kind of our annual checkup is 125 bucks. Right. So I take a picture of that in my app of that 120 I, I pay it i pay my my pediatrician my wife paid it um we got the bill we took a picture of it in our app and then within four to five days you will be reimbursed for that wellness check so it is ach directly back into your account um we use some fintech on the back end that allows us to do that pretty seamlessly a bigger thing like a, a knee replacement for example um, you, you find, you find out, you know, you have to get a knee replacement. You're just going to let us know who you want to go to, who, who, what orthopedic surgeon you want to go to, to do that. We will call that orthopedic surgeon beforehand. We'll say, Hey, can we get a cash rate? Right again, it'll be probably more than 20 or 30%, more like 30 to 40%. We will then pay that orthopedic surgeon before you walk in the door that day. Um, because that's why we get that cash discount. Um, as opposed to the orthopedic surgeon having to haggle with health insurance plans for 90 or 120 days, right? We'll pay that the day you get in. So you don't have to deal with any bills, no invoices, nothing. Um, So that's how some of those bigger procedures work. Now, if if there's an emergency, you just go to the hospital, right? And you will get bills from the hospital after the fact. Mm -hmm. Again, you take the bill, you go into our app, you take a picture of them, We deal with it on the back end, we figure out which of these bills are good, which ones are bad, which ones need to be negotiated, which ones, you know, are upcharged because, you know, for stuff that you didn't actually have done to you. We figure out all those bills in the back end and then we will negotiate with the hospital and um, we will again ACH that money directly to the hospital. Um, And so you don't have to deal with with any of those those bills. Mm um, and so you know, ultimately, you know what differentiates us versus insurance is insurance you're paying a premium you assume that insurance company is going to pay for it. For us is we're just giving you tools right so that you're ultimately responsible for your bills, but we're giving you tools to reduce those bills and we're giving you a group of people that are willing to crowdfund those bills and help you with those bills in the case of you know in, in the time of, of need. So it's pretty simple. It's a little bit of a change. It's just not handing your insurance card. It yeah. is, it's just asking, hey, can I have cash pay rate? Um, and that's really the, the, the only big, you know, huge change. We're tech enabled on the back end to take care of a lot of the harder logistics. So you don't have to do any negotiating or nothing like that.
0: And your experience and the experience of your members, I mean, how willing are providers to give the, the cash base rate? Yeah, it's probably
1: four times out of five. They'll give you a, a cash pay rate. you know, and, and and almost every time for the big procedure. so the 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 you know, again, we, we can kind of go into how why our healthcare system is totally messed up, but the primary care physicians, the OBGYNs, the pediatricians have already been negotiated down pretty low um, by their the health plans <clears throat> because they have no negotiating leverage against the health plan um, where the big hospital systems do, right. And so that's why the hospital systems, prices are super high the pre- primary care physician OBGYN, those folks are pretty low and so you know the only times we don't get a cash pay would be in one of those scenarios where the pediatrician is like look i'm, I'm already giving a really low rate you know in those cases are like fine let's pay full price that's that's okay with us like we want to support our docs um, mm-hmm. and have them love us um because they they hate health insurance, <laughs> you know they hate health insurance as much as I do. Um, and so we're we're really trying to give them an alternative to to health insurance. Also, not only on the patient side, but on the doc side.
0: What type of tools and resources do you guys have for members around determining, like the quality of a facility or the quality of uh, of a certain doctor or provider? Because um, you know what I'm realizing is that in you know, in other industries where price can be a good determinant of quality, it seems like in healthcare, sometimes it's flip-flop, like the worst, totally. lowest quality is the highest price and the highest quality can be a lower price than you would expect. So any resources that you guys give members or is that on the docket?
1: Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I want to address that that one one comment you made because it's so true that people don't fully understand, right? You think, for example, hotels, the highest price hotel is going to be the highest quality hotel, right? The Four Seasons is going to be a little bit different than the Comfort Inn, right? Um, in price and quality. Um, and in healthcare, it's actually, and in, in most other places, right? It's like, um, it's inverse. It's inverse of that, right? It's, it's, um, so if you think about this, right? If, if a knee surgeon does four knee surgeries a month, right? they're not going to be very good at it. Um, They have to allocate their time, their tools, their materials over four, right, knee knee replacements. And they're going to have a lot of complications, you know, more kind of complications per hundred than somebody who does it. You know, I talked to a knee surgeon the other day. He's like, oh yeah, I do like six or seven a day. I'm like, wow, okay. Like, so imagine six or seven a day versus four a month. The six or seven a day has his own anesthesiologist, his own building, his own, you know, uh, uh, his own contract with the, the, the product, like the actual knees that they're putting in there. Um, he's way better at it. Cause if there is something that he finds during surgery, he's seen it a hundred times, mm-hmm. right? There are fewer complications after the fact. And so he can actually do it at a significantly lower cost than the guy who does it at four per month. Right. Mm-hmm. So, The guy who's four per month is a lower quality and a higher cost. The guy who's seven or eight a day is a higher quality, lower cost, right? That's one of the crazy things about about our healthcare system. Um, And so we actually offer people on our app tools that that show their doctor. It's almost every doctor in the country. um, And their quality scores, cost scores, based upon a number of sources of data. Um, I mean, I can tell you... If the complications for your doctor are higher or lower than complications for doctors in your city, state, or country in the, in the United States, so for example, if you know the complications per hundred on a knee replacement, I'm, this is a total random number. It's this is not actually it, but I'm just mm-hmm. giving you for example is ten per hundred, right? I can tell you if the knee surgeon, orthopedic surgeon, you're going to is 15 or 20 per 100 or two or three per 100, right? And so wouldn't you prefer to go to the orthopedic surgery surgeon that has two or three complications per 100 as opposed to the 10 per 100, right? And and that's how we use quality data, right? Because ultimately that second complication for knee surgery most of the time is you need to come in and they need to redo it, right? And so you're paying another 30 or $40,000 again to do it. Um, and so it lowers costs, it's a way better experience for the end user, and we're getting people into really high quality docs. So that's all at the tip of your fingers on our app um, in, in the Apple you know,
0: um, store. So you know, it's, it's really cool. Yeah. So what's been the, I mean, all this sounds great. What's been the biggest you know, barrier to scaling um, the membership and what are some of the hesitancies that you hear that people have? about joining
1: yeah anything you anytime you do something that's i mean it's it's such an overused term but i'm gonna say disruptive (laughs) um or just say different right it it requires behavior change um and you know health insurance everybody um knows that they're you know they hate health insurance like it's like one of the low I, i saw the other day that gallup did a poll it was like the third most hated industry on, in, in, the, in the country. Number one was pharmaceuticals. Number two was the federal government. Three was health insurance. You know, so they, everybody hates it, right? But they know the evil that they're getting, right? Like they know what they're getting, you know? <laughs> um, and, and so for me, it's like, hey, I can save a family of four. For my family, you know, we've saved about $10,000 a year, right? Which is a lot of money mm-hmm. um, by doing it this way. So even if I can save you, even if it's $5,000 a year, wouldn't you wanna try it? A lot of people are like, you know what? It's just too much behavior change for me um, to, to try it. I mean, that's, that's the, the number one kind of reason that we've gotten for people who are like, I really love it, but, right? Um, and I was like, man, if you would just try it, uh, um, I think you'd really love it to see how simple it is and, and um, just w- what better care that you can get for your, for your family because you don't have to worry about it anymore if your pediatrician is in network or out of network everybody's in network right like that's the number one thing my wife used to ask me is our pediatrician is my OBGYN in network or out of network mm-hmm. you know like i was and if it's out of network we can't go with that health plan <laughs> right in ours it's like everybody's in network which is just
0: which is the way it should be which is great right. yeah two things on that one the fact that people hate health insurance is really interesting and and it's really interesting if you start looking at the uh, NPS, the net promoter scores of these carriers, it's like terrible. You know, you think about like Ritz-Carlton is way up here. I mean, just the, and then you got the major medical carriers way down here. I mean, it's kind of eye-opening and, you know, for what it's worth, a lot of people look at those. That's, that is interesting. And, but I don't think a lot of us stop to think necessarily think about that or say, what is the net promoter score of this person that I do business with a lot? Yeah. I mean,
1: Chick fil A is like a 60 or a 70 or something like that. Um, You know, Ritz Carlton and Four Seasons are are up there too. And I think the the last number I saw was health insurance in aggregate was like a six. Yeah. You know, and I think a bunch of them were in the negatives. And I don't even know how that works as a negative MBS score. Like, how do you even do that? Um, Yeah. But, um, you know, and it's like, wow. Like, you know, one thing I've heard is like, this is the one service that I buy voluntarily that makes me feel dumb, right? I'm like, wow, you know, you're actually buying a service that your family relies upon that makes you feel dumb. Like it's so complex that people feel dumb. Like these are, you know, super intelligent people that can't figure out how this actually works. Right, right. Um, And so we're trying to like, make everybody feel smart by doing this. you know, because this is super easy to understand uh, and it takes a little bit of behavior change, but if you're willing to do it, um, it'll make you feel smart and you'll save a bunch of money and you'll get better care. From yeah.
0: I've seen a real shift too. i in the past where it seems like a lot of the, hesit- a lot of the concern for most of us about why do I go and get health insurance is so that I can avoid financial ruin? How am I going to pay if a, a serious medical condition or procedure comes along? But, you know, as the, curtains getting pulled back more and more about kind of how the system works and the pricing and the cash base rates, um, cash pay rates. I think people are getting more confidence to say, hey, there's information out here. There's tools out there. There's a process here that has had success that I can think about this differently. And I could probably take on a little bit more of the risk of being responsible for these bills, which I ultimately am, Mm -hmm. and go a little bit more direct in some, Mm -hmm. some circumstances. So that's encouraging. We're making uh, to some progress, see-
1: right? It's transparency laws, you know, the um, in the, the last administration, I think, that, you know, there was I think it was an executive order actually that was like, hey, hospitals have to, you know, share their prices. Yeah. Um, which is, I, I think, a great step in the right direction. Um, now you just need people to care about what those prices are. Like if you don't pay for things, like you don't really care what the price is, right? Um, and most Americans don't pay Really, for their health. I mean, for their healthcare, their insurance provider pays for their healthcare. Right. Um, you know, and oftentimes, just the way the weird thing about health insurance and the perverse incentives, like I said before, was health health insurance almost doesn't care about what the price is. Um, you know, and so because you know, there's something called a medical loss ratio, which I know you know what it is, but you're, for your listeners, it is um, health insurance plans can only make 15 to 20 percent of your premiums in in profit. Right, so if you have a thousand dollars of premiums, all they can do is make one hundred and fifty bucks on, in profit. And so the question, which sounds great from the outside, the problem is, is like, how do they increase their profit? Increase premiums. Your premium has to go up, so yeah. they're actually incentivized for your premiums to go up, right? And so your hospitals are also incentivized for their costs to go up, the prices to go up at the hospital because they make more money. So if you have the buyer of healthcare, aka the insurance companies and the seller of healthcare, aka hospital systems, both incentivized for the price to go up, what's going to happen? The price is going to go up, right? I mean, it's not that complex. Right. <laughs> I mean, you have some incentive systems in our system right now that, um, that, that just rec- almost require the prices to go up for everybody to, to continue to operate, right? So right. it's one of those crazy schemes that we have in our in our in our economy um that i truly believe is is we're, we're taking me I'm um, i can pay my 1200 bucks a month the middle class um you know that's where it's like they are underinsured you know um and that's where i get fired up it's like we're the the number one re- tax on the middle class is health insurance you know and that's a
0: shame you know yeah. it shouldn't be that way yeah and the narrative has only gotten more concerning around that, or the story has only gotten stronger around that with a lot of the transparency in the files that are coming out because it's pretty eye-opening to look for some of these medical codes and procedures where you know here's the Blue Cross rate, here's the Aetna rate, and then here's the cash pay rate and the variance in that for the same exact procedure, same exact facility is you know sometimes six, 000, seven thousand dollars, and so people are their eyes are being to open to the fact that this this partner that you've had this network that was supposed to be giving you the lowest, uh, rate and the lowest discounts is maybe not actually been, been doing that. Um,
1: yeah. And it's even worse. Sometimes it is, you know, Cigna will pay a thousand dollars for something and blue cross is paying $3,000 for something. It's like two or three times, you know, what the next guy is paying. And it's like, Whoa, you know, in a, in a really true free market, right everybody would be paying almost the same, yeah. right? The, the, the bigger guys would probably pay a little less than the smaller guys, because you got more negotiating power. It just shows that we're not, we don't have a free market within the healthcare system, and that's why our healthcare prices are so high.
0: Right. Yeah, you mentioned incentives, that's come up a few times on this podcast, and uh, there, there's really some misaligned incentives, incentives and really for all stakeholders within in the system that, again, it's pretty eye-opening once you become, become uh, aware of that, for sure. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about it, but anything else you want to say around uh, when I was looking at your website, you know, you guys take the transparent revenue streams very seriously and the transparent Mm -hmm. pricing. Yeah, I mean, it's really important for us. And
1: actually, we, we originally in our initial business plan, we were going to take a percentage of revenue, a percentage of, you know, contributions into the system. And we kind of realized it was like, okay, that's kind of what the health plans are doing currently. And that incentivizes us for the total cost of the system to go up. So, we change that to say, we'll just take a subscription fee. Um, so, you know, we take 25 bucks um, out you know, out of, per person, per month as a subscription fee. Um, the rest goes as, you know, contributions to, to, to medical needs. Um, and we think that's, you know, a, a, a fair number given what we got, we're providing, the tools we're providing on, on, on the back end, especially since it's 50% less than, you know, some of the alternatives um so that was really important to us to align our incentives with the incentives of the you know the members of of our community um you know just given what we've seen you know when when those things are misaligned so that's that's really really important to us um we also take a little bit of a fee on on negotiating so if we will go down if we go and negotiate your rate so say say you have a $50,000 Fifty thousand dollar hospital bill, and we negotiated down to twenty five thousand dollars. We'll we'll take a percentage of those savings, but again, it's it's incentivizing us to get the prices down as low as possible, which therefore gets the prices for our members down as low as possible. You know, one little kind of weird thing about ours, I think it's cool uh, about our our, our service is you're only paying for the medical bills that month, right? So if I'm making up numbers here, but let's just say there's a million dollars in medical bills in September of 2022, 2021, excuse me. Um, and we have 2000 members, right? That would be, five or 2000 families, that would be $500 per family that month. Let's just say in October, so next month, we have $900,000 of, of medical bills, and we still have 2000 families. Your 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 contribution that month will be four hundred and fifty dollars as opposed to five hundred dollars. So we have a dynamic pricing from month to month, and so our entire community of people are kind of rooting for each other to keep bills low, right? Because it it actually impacts how much you're paying on a on a month to month basis. Hmm. You know, a health plan you pay in a kind of a static you know number every month. It's twelve hundred dollars a month, right? Uh, we're different than that we're, we're we're dynamic you're only paying for the medical bills and we're making all of those things transparent right so we're going to go in and say hey we had 10 knee replacements and 42 primary care physician visits and and here's where the price what the price the average price was right and here's what the average health plan would pay and here's the difference right so you're going to actually be able to see where every single dollar went that month right mm-hmm. we want to be radically transparent. Um, Cause right now, you know, people give something to United Healthcare and they have no clue how that gets spent. Like, we're gonna show you, you're like, no, no, your money went on Sarah's knee replacement, right? Um, And I think that's a really important piece is to be transparent, because one thing we've heard about insurance is people just don't trust insurance, right? Um, And so we wanna be the alternative to insurance, the non-insurance provider. And so we're gonna be radically transparent. Um, and we think that's going to be, you know, helpful to the, to the, the community. We call them the crowd, um, given crowd health, right. we think it will be helpful to, for the crowd to, to see all that information. Um, and we think we'll, we'll, we'll change behavior too. Yeah. So nobody I- wants to be like the highest cost knee replacement, right? It was like, Ooh, that was me. You know, like you can, you're actually going to see the number, right? Like, ah, I don't want to be the highest price guy.
0: Right. Which leads to the right incentives. You know, I've got this community that I don't want—I don't want to financially burden if I don't have to, or uh, which is just a different mindset than kind of your traditional group health plan a lot of that personal health stuff is just kept secret like I don't know what's yeah. going on with my employees or maybe I see the claim but I don't exactly know who's who's dealing with that but sure that wasn't very articulately said but um, no no but
1: it, and legally so like a lot of times legally like you can't ask where the right. claims came from and stuff like that because right it would it would you know impact your employment which is a totally different topic and I'm not sure you want to go there but it was like I think we need to to bifurcate employment and in health insurance, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and I know there's, there's laws in place for, you know, employers over 50, they have to give them health insurance, but I think there's some other things going on that, you know, you can, some, some organizations can get stipends for health insurance so that they can actually go out and look for health insurance. I think ultimately, you know, the best thing for the system is for you to bifurcate those two things. Um, because, you know, you don't think you're paying for your health insurance, but you are. Um, you think your employer is paying for it, but guess where that money is coming from? It's coming from what you could be getting paid in salary <laughs> is, is going to be paying, your, you know, healthcare. So, and on average, Kaiser uh, Health um, basically came out and said it was like $22,000 or something like that is the average family, you know, premiums. Um, it's like 7,000 for an individual. It's like, that's how much your health plan is paying. Or excuse right. me, your employer is paying for your for your health, right? Like that's a lot. That could be salary that you get, you know, in your pocket as opposed right. to it going to healthcare.
0: Right. Yeah. And you can quickly by Googling get the graphs that show um, you know, track the increase in health care premiums compared to employee wages. And they've pretty much just eaten up any type of uh, cost of living or other than just like a cost of living wage, any increases in in compensation.
1: Yeah, middle class has seen zero real income growth over the last three decades as a result of health insurance zero i mean just basically basically that means just inflation it's yeah. gone up by inflation right and so people are, are really worried about these you know income disparities and things like that i was like man one of the number one you know variables there is health insurance because it impacts the middle class a heck of a lot more than it impacts me right like 1200 dollars a month for your family if you're making Sixty grand and have three or four kids, like that's that's a lot, <laughs> you know. Um, and and so that's it's just it's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. Um, so that's where you know we're looking for some of those middle class folks. Like, look, there's an alternative, you know. Right. And and oftentimes, I think ours is going to be better than the employer gig. Um, and ultimately, that's where we want to go. Is saying, hey, if you really love Crowd Health and what we're doing, then say say no to your employer's insurance and come and join us. Right. Um and we think there's there's going to be some some opportunities there.
0: Yeah. Like I said, I'm I'm optimistic and I think we're seeing a shift to where as people are educated and they understand there are these tools available where I can navigate the system on my own and it's going to be less probability that I end up with this massive medical bill that's going to bankrupt my family or there's going to be ways to fight it and hey, we'll show you how to do it that people will be able to view really their employer as this is just kind of a financing mechanism and it's my dollars and so there's less of a need for that. Let me shift my mm-hmm. focus over here and, and go this alternate way. So it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting. Well, you, you kind of mentioned something
1: there, right? Like going, going at it all alone. <clears throat> you know, I don't, I don't want any, you know, listeners to, to say, oh man, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready to take my healthcare all by myself, right? Like, um, you know, in reality that you're kind of doing it by yourself now, because your employer is probably not giving you a ton of resources to help you navigate this, you know, for crowd health, we actually have a we call it the care advocacy team. It's really a care navigation team where mm-hmm. you will have a, a, a person internally that you can call, you know, anytime if you need, need help and it's one person, right? So Sarah, if Sarah is your person, you can talk to Sarah every time. Um, and if Sarah, for some reason is not available, she can either call you back or somebody on Sarah's team can talk to you. But we're not sending you into big call centers of people where you have to tell your story three or four times to figure out what the heck is going on, right? We think it's super important that people don't feel lonely, right, doing their health insurance, but feel like they're part of a community, and that's a kind of a key component of what we do is that care advocacy. So we think that's that's going to wow our customers. I mean, it has. Um, So that's what we're what the kind of the strategy that we're taking on on the customer service end.
0: Yeah, that's a big piece of it. That's what. I'm seeing on my end the employers that are really pushing the needle and really changing things are getting away from the fully insured model. They're going to a self-insured model, really building out their plan, getting access to the claims, and then really bringing in these advocacy tools and mm-hmm. shopping tools and negotiating and direct contracting to really get the price down. Yeah, um, those are the ones that we we're seeing are are drawing the or uh, driving the best needle, and that's why I'm excited about something like Crowd Health because what do I do if my employer's not doing that, you know, and I'm stuck with my $8,000 deductible? Well, Hey, there's some more options out here where I can go take advantage of some of those tools and do it on a subscription based model. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Andy, you've been so generous with your time here. Uh, Let me ask you this. What, what's a, what's a book that's had the greatest impact on your thinking or you've recommended the most, man, I, I, and especially in the
1: space that I've, I've been in um, you know uh, never pay the first bill is is a really um really interesting one um so everybody should go check that out i mean it, it really does kind of lay out the framework for how we're how we're gonna gonna operate um so so definitely check check that one out
0: um that would be kind of my number one book right now that i would i would recommend to folks yeah i'm hoping to get marshall on the uh on the podcast here in october i'm hoping so he's a good dude he's a good dude yeah, so awesome. Well, Andy, uh, thanks again so much for the time. really enjoyed the conversation, uh, learned a lot here, and I think others will definitely benefit from it as well. Um, if folks want to get connected with you, if they have any questions about anything that you said, where's the best place for them to, to do that? Yeah, go to
1: www.joincrowdhealth.com. Um, There's a bunch of ways to connect with us there. You know, we're not like your health plan and who hides that telephone number deep down into the, the the bowels of their 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 site. No there's a chat feature there. And um if you want to reach me directly um you can reach me at
0: hey h-e y at joincrowdhealth.com. Okay. Awesome. I'll direct people there. Really appreciate the time. Thanks, sir. Well that does it for this episode. If you're enjoying the show, I hope you'll tune into future conversations. I'll be posting those on my LinkedIn and Twitter pages, both at Nicholas Cram. As always, if you have any suggestions for someone I should have on the show, you can email those to email at nicholas, N-I-C-K-O-L-A-S-C dot com. But until then, the next time, hope you have a great day.